Hello, welcome to another King and Servant podcast. My name is Jonathan Goundry. I'm delighted to be here once more. This is now show number 18. And uh, tonight, you've just got my good self. Um, Brian uh, has caught the flu, unfortunately. And there's no special guest lined up for this evening. Uh, but I'm hoping that there's enough in me to substantiate a full hour of recording and then your listening uh, enjoyment. Uh, so let's see how it goes. But before we go into the subject matter at hand, I do want to make a few announcements. Um, a few weeks ago, I purchased the domain name for Paradoxical Theology. So if you go to paradoxicaltheology.com, it should bring you to a website under construction. Uh, but basically what I have in mind for this is a side project where I can work with other men who've done a lot of study in this area and put together a small mini-series on paradoxical theology. And this is akin to what I did with Gene Cook with the uh, Two Kingdoms Theology website. I don't know if you've been to that website or not, but uh, there's a link provided on the King and Servant homepage if you're interested in that. But I just thought it would be an interesting subject to do because I think paradoxical theology is the missing link of systematic theology. I know technically it falls under the... Uh, introductory portions of a systematic work known as the uh, prolegomena but I think it's so important that we understand paradoxical theology that it deserves I think a, a chapter alone in a systematic work uh, because from there we're going to explore how paradoxical theology gives you a balanced Calvinism it avoids hyper-Calvinism, in my estimation. And I covered this on show 7. If you want to find out more about that, I would encourage you to go to, to that particular show. It also deals with um, issues pertaining to the nature of God and his will and uh, his being. The fact that he is triune, that he is three in one. Uh, the hypostatic union, that Jesus is the God-man. And how is that possible in the one person, Jesus Christ? So there's going to be some shows I'm going to do that are going to get quite philosophical. And uh, hopefully, um, I'm in talks right now of having Paul Minada join me uh, for that show. And uh, he's done a lot of homework in this area. And uh, he's going to speak past most of us. But uh, what he will bring is solid philosophical theology on paradoxical theology. And then to kind of balance that out, I want to get some other folks involved as well. I'm talking to a gentleman right now who is uh, writing a book as we speak, uh, pertaining more to the application of this doctrine in Christian living. Uh, so let's see what the Lord does. Um, but I'm putting it out there. It may amount to naught, who knows. But um, now that we're working on getting an internet connection into the studio, which brings me to my final announcement and the one that I'm most excited about, just been in talks uh, a few months ago with Brian's brother, who's helping us right now improve on the show. And one of the things he's um, offered is to set us up so that we can have a live audio feed to the show, which will mean eventually, by God's grace, we will be able to go live, that we can hook onto somebody else's server and uh, you'll be able to listen live to the show. And at that point, there may be an opportunity to have phone calls or people join a chat channel whereby we can have live communication with one another as I'm doing the show. So that's the far end goal. 
But as soon as we get this set up, what I want to do is have guests on the show that are quite keen to come on the show, but they don't live in South Florida. They live in California, or they live in Michigan, or they live, you name it. Uh, so this will kind of, I would say, give more opportunity for, for better quality shows with, with new guests who otherwise couldn't be in studio but can have an interview with me via the phone. So I think that's all the introductions out the way. Uh, I hope you are enjoying the shows. I have noticed that the debate that I've done has uh, generated a lot of interest and last week's show got a lot of downloads. So thank you for listening and uh, thank you for writing to me and asking uh, your questions. And that brings me actually to the subject matter at hand this evening because um, I got an email um, about two weeks ago or maybe three weeks ago now and it was a question pertaining to covenant theology. And covenant theology, as most of you know, is my favorite subject. Um, I never thought that would be the case. In fact, I used to be a dispensationalist, so I never thought covenant theology would be my thing. But um, it has so kind of shaped my understanding of the Bible and shaped my understanding of the New Testament church, as we'll touch on hopefully by the end of this show, that its impact has been massive. And also, covenant theology is one Bible teacher once said, is the gospel. That if you understand covenant theology, it's going to give you the historical framework, not for just understanding the Bible, but also to understand what the gospel is. So I think that's important, and that's worthy of our attention this evening. With this uh, gentleman who sent me an email, at this moment, for some reason, his name escapes me, but he had wrote this email basically laying out his own convictions pertaining to covenant theology, and how that my uh, official position on covenant theology pretty much compatible with his. But he had some questions concerning the uh, the sacraments and the ordinances in, in the church, which is, of course, water baptism and communion, but in particular water baptism. So some of you might be thinking right now, is this just going to be another discussion, Jonathan, on infant baptism? I'm hoping not, but I do want to answer this man's question. But in order to do so, we want to lay the foundation of all the covenants of Scripture so that when we get to the new covenant, and we look at its constitution, its makeup, we can actually have the right framework to understand why people like myself, people like Gene Cook, people like my father, only baptize professing uh, or confessing believers, that we don't baptize babies. And that's to do with the nature of the new covenant. So let's begin. Let's begin where the Bible begins in Genesis and I don't have any notes in front of me here, by the way, folks. So I'm just going to be hitting the mountaintops of covenant theology. This is not going to be an in-depth exegetical study. Uh, and for those who are interested in that, uh, I believe if you go to Unchained Radio in the archive section, there is still a series that I taught a few years ago now for the Exegia podcast, going back to those early days, on covenant theology. Now, the sound quality is horrendous, okay? I'll let you know at the outset. But it's for free, and I'm quite happy with the quality of the teaching content. So I would just encourage you also to go over there if you want to do further study. But this should be an overview and then apologetical defense of the credo Baptist position. But like I said, let's begin at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. We read then in the creation account that God makes man on the sixth day, and that man is the crown of God's creation, and how that he instructs him to till and keep the garden, and to take dominion over the earth and the animals. 
and this is a unique privilege to man upon the earth, and how that on the seventh day God rested from his, his works. And this rest is not to be seen as this place of inactivity, but rather a place of enthronement and completion. And the New Testament also speaks about this in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, I believe, that his works of creation were complete from the foundations of the earth, that his works from his perspective are eternal. And upon the uh, completion of that creation, he enthrones himself and he has man in the garden to be like him. And uh, in that setup there, we have two trees. We have the tree of life and we have the tree of good and evil. And Adam, placed in that context, that covenantal context, is given the command not to eat of the tree of good and evil. And if he was to do so, that he would surely die. And again, this is familiar to most people who are serious about the Bible. But I'm just going to add more of a covenantal framework to understand what exactly was going on in this creation account. Because there are other scriptures that speak of uh, Adam indeed being in a covenant with, with God. In fact, in Hosea 6-7 it says that Israel, like Adam, broke the covenant. And in, in Romans 5, when we have the headship of Adam, it's spoken of or taught in a covenantal context that through one man's sin, all men are condemned. And counterwise, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, through his man, that man's righteousness, many are made righteous. Uh, so this demands a covenantal understanding of man's original relationship with his creator. And it's interesting when you look at the uh, historical covenants of that time, uh, there was something known as a Zuzuan Treaty. And a Zuzuan Treaty basically consisted of a master and a servant, or a king and a servant, if you will. And uh, it normally took place in the context of a conquering king sparing a defeated king or a defeated nation or keeping a remnant alive and allowing them to dwell in the land as long as they made covenant with him and they kept the terms of the covenant that he would place upon them, that he would set the criteria and the stipulations of the covenant and the defeated king or nation would have to comply. And if they complied, he would give them liberty and legitimate residence within his nation. They would have to be assimilated, but they would be in his nation. But if they breached the covenant, if they revolted or strove to build their own nation, then he would bring down the covenant curses and he would actually, in most cases, wipe them out. And this was known as a Zuzan Treaty. And there are several examples in pagan culture of this. And some of you might be saying, even at this point, well, how can you take pagan culture as... Um, a reference to what God was doing with Adam in the garden. Well, it depends how you look at it. Is it the horse before the cart or the egg before the chicken? Which one came first? Well, the Genesis account clearly came first. Not so much the original, um, or the date rather, of authorship, which was through Moses, but what it records and the events therein of the first 11 chapters of Genesis before the new world. And that is actually the first covenant. And these pagan examples we see with the Zuzan Treaty is just uh, a Gentile Canaanite expression, if you will, of that original covenant.
so that when God made this covenant again with with uh, the people of old in the Old Testament, and we'll touch on this in the f- a few moments with the Mosaic economy, it wasn't something brand new. It wasn't something illegible. It was something that they had full uh, awareness of and understanding about. So that's why God does it. He uses language of accommodation, but it's rooted in this first original covenant in Genesis. And you might even object to that by saying, well, I don't find the word covenant in Genesis. Well, you have to understand, as I taught a few months ago, when, uh, I can't remember what show it was now, it was show 9 or 11 about studying the Bible. You have to understand that the Bible is essentially two covenant documents, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Testament is focused on the Mosaic economy, and the New Testament is focused on the Gospels and the New, the new Covenant itself. So when we read Genesis, it's just a prologue to how they came into covenant in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. That's why there's only 11 chapters given to the old world before the flood of Noah. So that should shed some light on why we have such brief revelation uh, concerning the covenant made with Adam in the garden. But as we go through scripture, we see that God explains this and expounds upon this. In time we get to New Testament didactic passages such as Romans 5, we see indeed clearly Adam was in covenant uh, with his creator. We took on the form of a Zuzan treaty, um, and this is God's language of accommodation, as I was saying, that this is his way of communicating to us what he wants from us. And the original covenant was that first one with Adam in the garden. I think I've stressed that enough, but what else can we say about this first covenant? Well, it's typically referred to as a covenant of works because it was um, based upon obedience of the servant, that the servant, which was Adam, in this case, had to obey all the stipulations of the covenant. And it was imposed upon him. He couldn't refuse it. He couldn't turn to God and say, no, I'm not interested in your offer of eternal life. I'm not interested in your offer of, of this covenant. But just as I described a few moments ago, in the nature of the case, it was irrefusable because the great king had imposed it upon him. And hypothetically, using deductive logic from Romans 5 and other important scriptures, he would have actually been confirmed in ethical righteousness if he had perpetually obeyed the law of God, if he had indeed kept the covenant and not partaken of the tree of good and evil. And I can't dogmatically prove this, but I believe at that point he would have been granted access to the tree of life. See, the tree of life in redemptive thought is always eschatological. You read about the new heavens and new earth, and in the new heavens and new earth we have the tree of life that is granted to man in that glorified cosmos. So we have this eschatological tension or this eschatological thrust heading towards the consummation of man's purpose which is to be like God because we're in his image and since God has dominion over his creation in a subservient analogous way and I must qualify this very carefully glorification is not deification there are two completely different things but man was to be like God and I've stressed this before that we are like God in our morality our rationality and also the office that we are called to. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that one day 
we will even judge angels. That angels will be subject to the glorified sons of God uh, in that new heavens and new earth. But we're not there yet by any stretch. But to set that foundation right in the Genesis account, that Adam's in covenant, he's told to take dominion, he can't do that by himself, so he's given uh, a wife by which they can um, produce children, and through that eventually take dominion. So how it would have worked hypothetically, as I understand the scriptures, is it would have been confirmation and ethical righteousness after overcoming the temptation of Satan in the garden, which would have left him in a irrevocable state of justification. Then the fulfillment of the dominion mandate by subduing the earth and ushering in uh, the presence of God. I believe the presence of God was there in the Garden of Eden and that was originally to extend to all the earth. And then upon the completion of that, we would have had glorification and man would have reached his final destination and we would have lived happily ever after. But that wasn't man's choice and that wasn't God's decree. And even though it was a legitimate, well-meant offer, you know, we all affirm that when it comes to the gospel, same applies to the covenant here with Adam. Uh, upon breach of the covenant, he comes under the covenant curses. And there we have that dialogue between God and Adam in the garden in Genesis 3, when he curses Adam, curses the woman, and curses the serpent for deceiving the woman. But then Adam himself, according to Timothy, First Timothy, transgressing the covenant, transgressing the law by taking, partaking of that fruit, that which was forbidden. So, it sounds like doomsday. In fact, it was doomsday. But God didn't leave man there. And what we have following this is this second covenant that is not like the first covenant, which is not like the covenant made with Adam in the garden. But now it's going to be on the principle of grace. And grace, according to the scriptures, is unmerited favor. That we haven't earned it, we haven't merited it, but God, in his mercy and in his love and generosity, gives us a gift. And according to the scriptures in Romans 4, it says a gift is of grace. It's not like going out to a job and you work 40 hours a week and you pick up your paycheck uh, the following week for that work that you did. Because that's now a debt, because you've earned that money. That's not a gift. You don't thank your employer for being uh, gracious. Now, you've done something for him, and he's done something for you. It's an equal exchange in that regard when it comes to the finances. But a gift is like at Christmas when you get a gift and you haven't worked for it. Uh, you may not necessarily have even been a good boy or girl to receive it or to get it. But uh, a family member or loved one gives you a gift uh, just to bless you and to be gracious to you. Well, that's what God does with Adam after the fall, that he sets up a second covenant. And the second covenant is based on the principle of grace. And this is known as the covenant of grace. And it begins in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is known as the proto-evangelium, which is the Latin phrase for the prototype of the gospel. That the gospel is seen in seed form in that passage there because it says that one day the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent and as we go through redemptive history it's this story about this seed and how this seed will usher in the kingdom of God 
And when we get to the book of Galatians in New Testament Revelation, we read that indeed Christ is that promised seed. And we'll touch on that uh, in, in a few more moments when we get to the, the uh, final administration of the covenant of grace, which is the new covenant. But from Genesis 3.15, we have the covenant community awaiting the Messiah. And they know that one day he will come through the woman, the seed of the woman. And some have argued that this is an allusion to the virgin birth. That's not the seed of the man. The man carries the seed, but the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. So from Genesis 3 onwards, we have this hope of redemption. And we have two lines develop after the murder of Abel. Cain is jealous of Abel because he offers a better sacrifice. And most theologians agree that his sacrifice was accepted. One, according to Hebrews 11, he did it by faith. So he was in the covenant community and he offered his lamb by, uh, by faith. And Cain did it by works, or not by faith, which I guess could only be works at that point. But what they even offered kind of represented that. Abel offers a lamb that he probably didn't really have to work for, and it was an acceptable sacrifice because of its innocence. And Cain offers the fruit of the ground, which was cursed after the fall. And uh, God actually says, by the sweat of your brow you will earn your bread. And thorns and thistles will the land give, and you will have difficulty in, in labor. So, so we see there that Cain is rejected and Abel's sacrifice is accepted. As a consequence, Cain becomes jealous and he slays Abel. And from that point on, when he's banished from the land, uh, he is now considered reprobate. And from him, we read in Genesis 4, we have this line of apostasy and this goes from bad to worse. And even though common grace allows them to dwell and to flourish and to live and to build and even to have music and art, they're nevertheless rejected by God. But after the death of Abel, Adam and Eve beget another son called Seth. And it means a point. The word Seth means to a point. And he is seen as the replacement, if you will, of Abel. And from Seth we have the godly line. And I argue that this is two communities. We have the covenant community with Seth and then we have the world with Cain. And that community at that time, this is very important to understand this, the community at that time was hereditary in that from Adam we have Seth and from Seth we have a line of children who grew up to be men who carry the promise, who believe the promise and exist within a covenant community. doesn't mean everybody within that community was saved, but that was the line that God was revealing himself to. That was the line that was remaining faithful to God. But again, even within the covenant community, uh, things seem to go from bad to worst. Because we read in Genesis 6 of how the evil in, in the world gets so bad that uh, God is only pleased to save Noah, his three sons, and their, and their wives. And that was it. No grandchildren either. Maybe they didn't have children. I think that's the general uh, consensus of, of uh, Bible teachers, that they didn't have children. Maybe because they knew that the flood was coming, or maybe, I don't know, that the Bible doesn't give us that revelation. But nevertheless, it bottlenecks down 
to the family of Noah. And God judges that old world with a flood, a worldwide flood that wipes out all men and every living creature other than that which was on the ark. And then uh, God, after many days, allows uh, Noah to re-enter the world. Uh, the Bible account says that he lands on the Mount of Ararat and from there he is able to uh, watch the sea subside and enter into what is known now as the new world. And at that point, God further administrates the covenant of grace because he says to Noah that um, he would never again flood the earth in judgment. In fact, he gives him the sign of the rainbow in the sky as a token of the covenant. And he says to Noah, Behold, my covenant is with you. So it's this idea that the covenant already existed, but now it was being further administrated to Noah. Noah offers up a sacrifice. Remember, he was taught to take on the ark seven of every kind that were deemed clean. And I think that was for the purpose of sacrificing food. So he takes some of those animals and sacrifices them to the Lord. Uh, God confirms the covenant with him and he sets up human government whereby uh, whoever takes a man's life, his same life will be required. And he puts the fear of man in the animals so that man can uh, flourish and uh, repopulate the earth. So an interesting uh, act on God's behalf that he was pleased just to save a remnant. And that remnant uh, was so small that even Ham, who was a son of Noah, eventually rebels against his father. And I don't want to go into all the graphic details to, to what took place there because there isn't uh, 100% clarity but it seems that uh, Ham saw more than just his father's nakedness, if you know what I'm saying. It wasn't as he walked into a tent and went, oh, oh dear, and told his, told his buddies, which at that time was just his two other brothers. It seems to be a bit more sinister than that, and I'll leave it like that. But when Noah wakes up and he knows what's happened to him, he curses Ham. And uh, Shem and Jepheth are blessed. And there's a prophecy at that point that the tents of Jepheth will one day dwell with the tents of Shem. That the line of Ham was to be exiled just as Cain was and the covenant community would consist of Shem and Jepheth. And there we have the covenant of grace in that administration of Noah. It's known as the Noahic covenant. And then following that, in a very brief time in the Bible, we get to Abraham in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, we have the covenantal calling of Abraham when he's called by the Lord from the land of the Chaldeans and he is told to go into a new land and that he is promised that in obedience to this that he would be blessed and that his offspring would be blessed. So Abraham in obedience to God does just that and dwells in a new land in which time God is pleased to make the covenant uh, with him, that he ratifies this covenant of grace now with Abraham. Um, it uh, begins in Genesis 15 when he has Abraham to look at the stars and to number them if he could. And obviously he couldn't. And there he's given the promise that one day his generation will be as multiple as the stars. And at that point it says that Abraham prepares a sacrifice 
for the Lord in ratification of this covenant. And it's only God who passes through the pieces of the sacrifice. And it's spoken of as this cloud or pillar that passes through uh, the uh, the offering. And in those t times when an offering was made in covenant, uh, they were normally cut asunder, that the calves or whatever else was sacrificed was to be cut in half. And the reason why it was so bloody is was to show the sacredness and the seriousness of what was being promised, that it was a sacred divine oath. But the significance of God passing through the pieces is that he's putting the onus, if you will, on himself, that he was the one who was going to make Abraham great. Again, this is grace. This is not works, not like Adam in the garden. But this is God's grace to Abraham and to his offspring. And it says also that Abraham uh, sees some birds attacking the, the offering and he has to fight off the birds. And again, this speaks of um, the covenant maker saying to the covenant uh, servant that if I am not true to my word, to my promise, let the curse that fell upon these animals come upon me. So this is serious stuff. I mean, this is, this is God's way of promising us the Messiah. So we have this covenant community from Abraham. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. And God also gives Abraham the sign of the covenant in Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, it says that God gives him the sign of circumcision. And this, this circumcision was to be uh, for every male born into the family or every servant that was male brought into the covenant community. And that Abraham at this time would erect altars in worship to God. And these became place markers, I believe, of the inheritance that one day would be theirs because God had promised them the land of Canaan. And I imagine, we can't prove this, but the people of old at that time would have congregated around these altars as, as signposts, as reminders of that promise that God had made to their father, Abraham. And from Abraham, we have Isaac, and we know about the story in Genesis 22 when Abraham is told to sacrifice Isaac and God was testing him to see if he had truly believed him. And at that point, um, when Abraham goes to sacrifice his son, God interjects and provides another sacrifice, a lamb caught in the thicket. And consequently, Abraham has a covenant confirmation that the promises were guaranteed to, to be passed on to his son Isaac. And we read about this in Genesis 26, when the meritorious obedience of Abraham results in the promises being passed on to Isaac and then Jacob. Now you might say, whoa, wait a bit, I thought Abraham was saved by faith. Yes, he was. He believed the gospel in Genesis 15. But his obedience resulted in the passing down of the promises to Isaac and Jacob. And that's why Genesis 26 speaks of it in that way, that Abraham obeyed God's law and his statutes and commandments. So we can never merit heaven but there are things we do in this life that we do merit, like our employment. And Romans 4, again, uses this argumentation. And there are other examples as well where we merit favor. But obviously, this is all because of God's grace, all because of God's sovereign kindness towards Abraham, and then on to Isaac, and then on to Jacob, and then on to Joseph. And you know the story about Joseph, at least most of you do. And at that point, they end up in Egypt. And in Egypt, they flourish. But there's a pharaoh that rises to power that doesn't know Joseph, a new pharaoh. And as a result, he gets insecure about the uh, 
the population of the uh, Old Testament people, uh, I mean, of the uh, Israelites, and how how they are starting to, in his perspective, take over or to be too strong. So he goes to weaken them by bringing them into bondage and slavery. That time we have uh, a baby called Moses that is born, and his life is spared when Pharaoh goes to execute the uh, the children of the Israelites. And through that escape, and I think most of you know the story, how he's brought up in the Egyptian culture. Uh, he witnesses a murder one day of one of his fellow Jews, and in rage he slays the uh, the culprit. And uh, there are witnesses to this, and when he finds out about these witnesses and they accuse him, he flees, and he flees to the wilderness. Then the wilderness, he's called by God, Exodus 3. Uh, this is a Christophany. Jesus speaks to him through the burning bush, and he's taught to go back into Egypt to rescue his people. And long story short, he's successful in this. No, I'm giving you the mountaintops here, but I need to press on to get to the New Testament scriptures. We see then that uh, God is pleased to make another covenant with them, but this is like the first covenant made with Adam in the garden. We know this through scripture, um, as I alluded to a few moments ago in Hosea 6-7, that Israel, like Adam, broke the covenant. Again, this is the same type of covenant. It fits the model of a Zeusman treaty when God places uh, an obligatory covenant upon his people. They couldn't refuse it. And in Exodus 23 and 24, they agreed to keep the terms of the covenant. And Moses offers sacrifice and sprinkles the blood upon the altar and the tabernacle and upon the book of the law. And it represents how that if the Jewish people as a covenant community failed to keep the commandments of the law in that covenant, that they would be cursed, that they would be judged. And in Leviticus, we have the covenant curses and also in Deuteronomy 28, that these covenant sanctions with their blessings and curses are read out to the Old Testament people. And the curses are heavy, but the blessings are great. And they're instructed there that if they were to obey God, they would be exalted above the nations and that the nations would flow into Israel and that they would be a light unto a lost and dying world. Now some qualifications need to be made at this point. I said a few moments ago that this covenant is like the first covenant in the garden. The Abrahamic covenant is not. Galatians 3 really makes this abundantly clear. It says that the promise referring to Abraham is not like the law that came 400 years later, or 430 years later. And one is on the principle of grace, the other is on the principle of merit and law. Can you see the difference there? Very important distinction to make at this point. But anyway, what we have here by the time we get to Moses is the law administrated to the Jews uh, as an overlay uh, upon the underlying substratum of the covenant of grace. So we have the one covenant of grace. In fact, in Ephesians 2, it says that before us Gentiles were saved, we were strangers from the covenant's plural of singular promise. So we must affirm the unity of the covenant of grace. The psalmists as well uh, have the same perspective, that uh, they speak of the covenant as being one in nature and not multiple or divided that God's purposes and redemption is always one. 
And it's always leading to the Messiah, Christ Jesus. So from there, we read about their conquest in the land of Canaan through the leadership of Joshua. Book of Joshua covers that, of course. And then we have the judges after that, whereby they are to uh, basically uh, look after the land and rule and judge in that land. Uh, but there comes a point when they want their own king. And God obviously knew that this was going to be uh, a thing that they would desire. So they set up Saul, and God allows it. And this Saul, King Saul, becomes the first king of Israel. And uh, during that reign of Saul, there's another man, young man, born, uh, or contemporary with him, I should say, known as David. And David is used mightily, as you know the story, to slay Goliath. And as a result, he gets recognized by Saul, to the point that Saul actually becomes insecure around King David, or at that time, just David. And that begins this... Uh, this cat and mouse game between Saul and David as David is fleeing for his life from Saul because of his jealousy and rage against him. Long story short, Saul dies in battle, King David is made king, and at that time, as King David is seeking to build a temple for the Lord, because remember at that point you had the tabernacle, but he was wanting to take the ark and the tabernacle that was one time in Shiloh, and then I think in Kirith Jerum, and then he was wanting to bring it into Jerusalem on Mount Zion and make a permanent residence for the Lord to dwell in, known as the temple. And at that point, God confirms a covenant with him that he would indeed not build the temple because he had blood on his hands as a, as a man of war, but that his son Solomon would. And in Second Samuel 7.14, we have the Davidic covenant, where it is promised that there will always be uh, a son of David sat upon the throne of Israel. This has its first level fulfillment in Solomon, but obviously its ultimate fulfillment according to the New Testament scriptures, and Acts 3 bears this out with Peter's words, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, that he is the one who sits on the Davidic throne, the, uh, the throne uh, that is the kingdom of God on earth. And you might be asking yourself, well, it looks quite different, doesn't it? Because where is it? We don't see an, uh, a physical location today as we did in the Old Testament. That's because according to the New Testament scriptures, Christ is now ascended to the highest of heavens and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic promise. That Christ's ascension was not just him returning home. It was him as a man as well, enthroning himself over his creation for the purposes of judgment and redemption. That's why he said in the Great Commission, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go ye therefore uh, and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Lord, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So in the New Testament scriptures, time we get there, we have Christ fulfilling all these promises that he is the final uh, mediator between God and man. He is the only mediator ultimately between God and man and that he institutes uh, the Lord's Supper and inaugurates the new covenant by his death. And that's what the word testament means. It means covenant that is in, is in force by way of death. But rather than lambs and goats and other animals being sacrificed, 
in order for God's people to have peace with God and to be in his presence. It is God's dear own son that is sacrificed on behalf of his people. And Hebrews covers this, I think, perfectly. So that's where we want to go at this point. We've followed the covenant community through redemptive history. We see that there's always been a people of God that God has spared by his grace, even if it was down to a remnant as small as Noah and his family. But there's always been a covenant community. And in that covenant community, according to Romans, it was always a mixed bag. Because it says in Romans 9 that not all of Israel was Israel. And what Apostle Paul there is doing in that epistle is drawing a distinction between a true Jew of the heart and the Jew of the flesh. You see, in Christ's um, earthly ministry, the Jewish people, the Pharisees in particular, would boast of their heritage with Abraham. They would say in John 8, for example, we have Abraham as our father. That's why we know we are right with God. That's why we know we have the favor of God. And Jesus rebukes them and says, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was, I am. What's he saying there? That's a reference to his divinity because it goes back, of course, to Exodus 3 with the tetragrammaton, as it's known, the, the declaration of who he is, I am who I am, Yahweh. And uh, he was saying to them that he was indeed God in the flesh. And New Testament scripture clearly affirms this. So there we have Christ now finishing his work, completing his work. It is finished. Tetalistai, debt paid in full, was his final words upon the cross. He resurrects from the grave on the third day, ascends into heaven, enthrones himself over his creation on the right hand of the Father, and then commissions the church to go forward with the gospel. But going to Hebrews 8 now, we see there is a paradigm shift. There is a change in the covenant community because of the finished work of Christ. We should expect things to change because of the finished work of Christ. For example, there's no more sacrifice. Hebrews covers this. I think most people will accept that. Uh, because Christ has come, there's no more physical circumcision necessary. I know people do that for medical reasons, and I think that's arguable, by the way. It's a European, but it's, it's, it's still uh, practiced today, but it's no longer the same covenantal significance that it used to be because the Messiah has arrived and he has fulfilled the promises. So we should expect a paradigm shift. And this is where we go to Hebrews 8, and we see this clearly uh, delineated and spelled out in clear Greek. <laughs> so let's go over to Hebrews 8, Hebrews chapter 8, and we have the um, basically the uh, the promise of Jeremiah 31 expounded upon here in Hebrews 8, 9 and 10. Uh, but to read it to you once more from verse, um, I think from verse 1, we read here in Hebrews 8, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Remember, I just referred to that, that this is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent, see, he fulfills the tabernacle, the Lord set up and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since... There are priests who offer gifts according to the law. This is referring to the Levitical priesthood. Uh, but verse 5, They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
So the Levitical priesthood is the shadow. The Old Testament is the shadow. Christ is the substance. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more ex that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since he is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's drawn the argument here, whoever the author of Hebrews was, that the old covenant was only a type and shadow. It was inferior to the new covenant because the new covenant has a better mediator, right? It's right there on the page, verse 6, with better promises. Again, part B of verse 6. Um, and verse 7, for if the first covenant had been faultless, there would be no occasion for a second. In other words, if the old covenant could have done it, if it could have granted life, if it could have ushered in the kingdom, there would be no need for the second covenant established by the Messiah. But since that was never going to happen because of the fall, because of original sin, and more profoundly than that, because of God's eternal decree, we have the new covenant. In verse 8, quoting Jeremiah 31. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And verse 13, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete is grown old and ready to vanish away. I believe that final verse there is in reference to the impending judgment upon the old covenant people in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 through the Roman army. But getting back to the nature and constitution of the new covenant, now that Christ has arrived with better promises, what are these better promises? Well, the old covenant never totally purged sin. It was a temple covering. That's why he makes the argument the priests had to go back in every year on Yom Kippur and at certain times and seasons to offer more sacrifices to appease God's wrath because sin deserves judgment. And for, for the people of God to commune with God and to have favor with God, there had to, be this, had to be this perpetual offering of sacrifice. But after the offering of his son, there's no more sacrifice for sins, according to Hebrews that he is perfected for all time, all those who are sanctified, once and for all. This is the final sacrifice. They think that there could be um, another sacrifice other than Christ just blows my mind, and I know most of you, if not all of you, are in, in agreement with me right there. But to, to establish this point of what we should expect the new covenant community to look like, we have Hebrews 10, to uh, to 12, quoting Jeremiah 33. It's first prefaced as not being like 
the old. Not like it. Okay, <laughs> there's a tip off right there. So people who say, well, they're alike, I think they're missing the point here. They're not alike. In fact, they put an antithesis here. See this in Galatians three and four as well, as I referred to a few months ago. That the law is not like the promise. And uh, Galatians 4, using that illustration of the two mountains. So likewise here, didactically, we have it spelled out for us. For this is the covenant I will make with them, verse 10. I will put my law in their minds and in their hearts. This is a figurative way of speaking of regeneration. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2. And God, by his grace and through the power of the Spirit, uh, makes us alive with Christ Jesus and this is known as regeneration of the circumcised heart when our affections are changed and we now for the first time in our lives desire the things of God and we actually for the first time in our lives hate the things of the world and of sin and those things which are displeasing to God following that verse 11 and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying nor the Lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. So according to this, in this covenant community, you have all the people known the Lord. And verse 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So verse 10 is a present reality, is it not? We have regeneration. That's not an eschatological reality. That's not something down the corridors of time that we're working towards. It's a present New Testament gift that by God's grace we are born again through the power of the Spirit verse 12 I know I'm missing out verse 11 for a moment here but verse 12 is it a present reality or an eschatological reality it's a present reality I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I remember their sins no more I hope that's a present reality I do hope nobody has the interpretation that that is an eschatological reality that that's on the final day of judgment Get yourself into all types of bother once you start entertaining those thoughts. So likewise, verse 11 is a present reality. This is an apologetical defense of the superiority of the new covenant over the old that has now been fully enacted. We don't yet have all the um, full measured blessings of the new covenant, but the covenant itself, as it exists in redemptive history, has been fully administrated, inaugurated, and enacted. This is not in dispute. This shouldn't be in dispute. But there are some people who are loving the Lord who would look at verse 11 and say, no, that's for another day. That's for the new heavens and new earth. That's in the future. And from that, they have room for their position of having unbelievers in the new covenant. But according to this scripture here, if you follow it contextually, you can't break the new covenant. Notice how it's put an antithesis to the old back up to verse 8 because he found fault with them behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant with their fathers on the day I took them out of the, of the land of Egypt for they did not continue in my covenant and so I showed no concern for them declares the Lord so can you see that antithesis there that the first covenant in the wilderness at Sinai was breakable because it was based upon the obedience of the people. But this covenant is based upon the obedience of Christ, on the obedience of the mediator, on the obedience of the covenant head. 
not the covenant subject or the covenant body, the church. It's all been done by Christ himself. So as a result, everybody in that covenant will know the Lord. And somebody said, well, well, how do you know that? When you baptize a, a professing uh, or confessing believer, how do you know they're not a hypocrite? How do you know they're not an Ananias and Sapphira? Well, I don't know. But I have to administrate the sacrament in accordance to the constitution of the covenant. So what we have here is the visible church and the invisible church. We don't have this objective covenant in the external sense that puts everybody by virtue of baptism or circumcision objectively in the covenant. Just because somebody receives the sign of the covenant doesn't mean they're in the covenant. It's not like the Old Covenant. It's not like the Old Testament where you had to have a visible, external covenant community in order to preserve the way for the Messiah. That's not necessary now. So just because somebody receives the sign of the covenant doesn't mean that they're in the covenant. And yes, the quotation of Jeremiah um, was prophesied through that Old Testament uh, lens. But when we get to the book of Hebrews, it so clearly expounds upon it that we should have no question in our minds that who is truly in the new covenant? It's only those who have their sins forgiven, who have regeneration, and have a relationship with the Lord, who know the Lord. Uh, John seventeen three. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and your Son, whom you sent. That's eternal life, essentially. So, when we look at the positive command in the New Testament scriptures, when Jesus says, "From now on, I will divide households," doesn't mean that he wants to not see marriages work or anything like that. In fact, in First Corinthians seven, we have this regulated that there are going to be occasions when one person in the household gets saved and the other doesn't. And there are times when God is pleased to save entire households. We see that in the book of Acts. But that does not include unbelievers. And as a result, in my understanding here, in my strong conviction, it's not going to include infants because they're not going to know the Lord. You say, well, some infants can know the Lord. What about John the Baptist? Yeah, I know there's supernatural exceptions, but we're looking at the normative constitution of the covenant here. And I would say, given all that, given the positive command, given the uh, paradigm shift from the old to the new, given the clear didactic teaching of the constitution of the new covenant, we should only give the sign to professing or confessing believers. That's what we should do. I see nothing in the New, new Testament that would suggest otherwise. And now I'm going to get to it. Yes, I have tried to understand the infant baptism position, pedobaptism. It's, it's more sophisticatedly referred to. And I love you guys. And if you guys can ever correct me, feel free. Okay, feel absolutely free. But I don't think there's any way around this. And I know some of you might be listening, oh, you're not considering this, you're not considering that. Look, I've been on the block a few times on this. Don't want to come across like a no arm not that. But I've really been on the block a few times on this. Because it would have been incredibly convenient for me, having the reformed theology that I have today, to buy into the full package. But I just don't see it here. I've seen it in other areas. I was never a partial preterist 
until I listened to Gaudemar and Dee Dee Warren and then Gene Cook and then it just there you go I reformed I was never a Calvinist until I listened to James White and he pointed me to the scriptures these people again are always point me to the scriptures I'm not personality driven okay so don't get the wrong idea but they point me to the scriptures that clearly taught God's sovereignty and salvation I was once a dispensationalist but then somebody introduced me to the scriptures that clearly taught that the Bible is joined by covenant that that's the general framework of scripture and that covenant is what God is pleased to communicate his purposes to uh, through not dispensations that are distinct from one another so I reformed it but when I got to this issue I looked at the scriptures and I thought to myself after careful study the very first position I had when I first got serious about the Bible is the position that I have today and I think that should speak for something I don't think I'm holding on to a tradition here I've let go of a lot of traditions in my lifetime, a lot, to my own inconvenience. Huge inconvenience at times. But in this passage, I just don't see it. And I hope that you get to, to be challenged by this and hopefully come to the same conclusions I have. So that the purity of the church can be maintained. Now don't misunderstand me, I don't believe by baptizing babies you're bringing in apostasy or anything like that. But I think the best measure to preserve the purity of the church is to keep it to professing believers because when they do uh, manifest themselves to be hypocrites like Ananias and Sapphira, we have excommunication, we have guidelines in Matthew 18 and others to discipline those people in love in order to see the hope of final salvation on the last day. So we want to keep the church as pure as possible so that we can be the best witness to a lost and dying world. So I hope that answers uh, some of your questions concerning covenant theology, that I affirm the covenant work, I affirm the covenant grace, even the covenant of redemption and eternity past within the triune Godhead. But when it comes to the final administration of the covenant of grace, I have a cradle Baptist position, and that's why. So I hope you enjoyed this teaching. Uh, next week, uh, see what we can do. Uh, I've got some guests lined up, as you know. Uh, but in the meantime... I pray that the Lord will continue to uh, challenge you in these areas and that we will continue always to reform. God bless you all, and I'll see you next time.